Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, we're at Matthew 6, and we're uh, going to conclude today our series on stewardship that we've called Entrusted. The notion there, of course, being that everything that we have belongs to God and has been entrusted to us to use, to steward for his purposes and for his glory. So nothing that you have do you truly own. We speak that way, and I'm not suggesting that we have to nitpick how we talk and say, well, I don't own my house, and oh, you can't use personal possessive pronouns because none of it's really yours. I'm not out to like police everybody's speech or even my own speech. But just the mindset of recognizing everything that is in our possession actually belongs to God. And so the goal of stewardship is how do we take the resources, that is the finances, the possessions, the time, the relationships, the talents that God has placed into our lives and use them for his glory, for his purposes, and and faithfully and intentionally put those resources to work for the kingdom of God. So we've been walking through some verses in Matthew chapter 6, which is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 19 all the way down through 34. And we've seen a few principles uh, for stewardship as Jesus teaches here. The first week we saw that stewardship is about where your possessions lie, right? Where you store up treasures. And he talked about the wisdom of of storing up treasures in heaven for eternity because they will last, whereas everything that we pile up for ourselves here is going to rot or be destroyed or be stolen, end up on a junk heap. And so he says, don't store up treasures here, but store up treasures in heaven because that will last. And they gave that other principle, where your treasure is, there will your heart be, right? So wherever most of our stuff is, that's where our attention and our concern and our interest lies. And so if we're storing up For the future, that is, we're building God's kingdom, we're building relationships, we're looking to uh, advance his kingdom, then that's treasure that will last and it will expand our hearts uh, and our hearts will grow in that direction. And so that's what he told us there. The second principle he gave us in verse 22 and 23 is all about your perspective. Which kingdom, if you will, the earthly kingdom or the heavenly kingdom, do you see as most valuable, as most Uh, to prioritize. If you have a good eye, that means you see eternity. You see the kingdom of God as ultimate and most important for your life. And if you have a bad eye, that is kind of a stingy, greedy eye. That's like, I got to get, make the most of this time on planet earth that I possibly can. We talked about the analogy of the dot and the line. The dot being this earthly life has a beginning, has an end. It's short and the line being eternity in heaven, which goes on and on and on. If I'm living for the dot, my perspective is all out of whack. So we need to reorient, kind of turn upside down the way that we think about life and live for the line and not for the dot. Then last week, he gave us a third principle that stewardship is all about authority. It's about recognizing the authority of Jesus in our lives to be our master. And so we willingly submit our lives to him and not to earthly treasures, right? You can't serve God and money. You're going to serve something. You're going to serve someone. So the exhortation there is to make sure that who we're serving is God and not 
the resources that he's placed into our care. So today we'll take up the last chunk of this passage, verses 25 through 34. And Jesus has a very merciful pastoral word of care for us here. These are beautiful verses. So I'd like to read for you beginning in verse 25. Follow along with me. I'll read all the way down to verse 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. These are beautiful verses. I hope as you read this and hear the voice of Jesus here, you're comforted. I think that's the intent. He's just given a hard word, right, about submitting to God as master and not being enslaved to to, to the riches that are in our lives, whether through our abundance and our kind of, you know, hoarding of it and protecting of it, or through a lack of resources and therefore fear or kind of feverishly think we've got to pile up as much as we can because we don't have, we're afraid we're not going to have enough. Jesus gives a word here of, of care, of calm, of peace. Three times in these verses, we have the plain exhortation, do not be anxious. Three times. Do not be anxious. So we, we learn a few things about worry in, in these verses, and then there's um, a couple of uh, things to apply toward the end here about what we should do in light of these facts. So three things about worry. Number one, worry is disobedient. Three times in this passage, he gives this command. Do not be anxious. At its most basic, fundamental level, this is a command from our master. This is a command from King Jesus. Don't be anxious. So to be anxious, in a sense, is to disobey the Lord. It is to fall into a sinful trap. Do not be anxious. John MacArthur says, worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. Distrusting the promise and providence of God. 
I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Either you distrust his promise, which is basically, I don't really believe that God intends to do what he says, right? He's not going to keep his word. Or his providence, that is his ability to actually bring about what he promises. So I don't really think that God is able to do what he says. And when it comes down to the very basis of worry and anxiety, that's what's at play here. We're not trusting either that God's planning to keep his word or that God is able to keep his word. And so there is a lack of faith, which Jesus points out in verse 30. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So the worrying, anxious heart is a heart that is not exercising faith. It's not living in faithful dependence and trust on God at, at its most basic, fundamental level. Sometimes I think we kind of make excuses for ourselves, right? Maybe justifications for why you worry so much, right? Maybe you said something like, I'm just a natural worrier. I'm just a, an anxious person. What you're really saying is, I just don't trust God that much. It's kind of what it comes down to at the end of the day. At a basic fundamental level, anxiety in our lives is distrust in God's promises and providence. So anxiety in this sense is a sin. And so we need to hear this exhortation from Jesus as a command. Don't be anxious, right? That this is obedience to Jesus looks like increasing in faith and decreasing in worry and anxiety over our lives. So what shouldn't we be anxious about? He gives us a few things here. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious, which is pretty broad, all-encompassing, right? Don't be anxious about your food and drink, what you'll eat, what you'll drink. Don't be anxious about your body. Don't be anxious about your clothing, what you will put on. Life is about bigger, deeper, more important things than food and clothing. He says that in verse 25. There isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing, right? So don't get caught up in the basic little details of life and miss out on the more important aspects, namely all the things he's been talking about, storing up treasures for the, in the kingdom of God and living for eternity and serving God as your master, right? Don't miss out on those things because you're so stressed out about the <laughs> basics of life. That's all this is, food, drink, your body, your clothing, those are the basic necessities of life. And in this culture, in this day and age when Jesus was speaking, this was a time where it was, a, it was an agrarian society where they depended for their livelihood on the earth producing crops. And so it was much more uh, imperative, much more essential for people in that day and in that culture to have a fruitful yield during the harvesting season or there would really be the danger of famine of starvation and, th and things like that we don't really face that kind of uh, devastation that kind of like utter intimate dependence on the earth we do basically because if the earth suddenly all stopped producing we would all starve right that's how it goes but in our culture in our society we have so much available to us, right? Most of us are not in immediate danger of starving to death or freezing to death, right? We got plenty of things to wear. We got plenty of things to eat, but we still sort of find ways to worry about this, don't we? We, maybe we're not so worried, uh, like in, in terms of food and drink, we're not worried so much for the lack 
of food and drink, but because we have so many options, like just the sheer amount of options that are available can be crippling. You probably know what I'm talking about. So my food, should it be calorie-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, hormone-free, all this kind of stuff? Right, I go to a store and there's just shelves stockpiled with stuff. And now I've got to make the right choice for my family. How many times have you heard that phrase? Just doing what's right for my family, right? God's providing you food to eat. Like, maybe we should chill out a little bit about some of that stuff. We find ways to panic about what we're putting into our bodies. Or about our, our bodies themselves, right? He says, don't be worried about your body. So it's not, our worry goes so far beyond, am I basically healthy and able to live? It goes to, how do I look? How do I feel? How do others perceive me? Am I fit? Am I unhealthy? Like we have so many ways that we worry and stress ourselves out about our bodies that just don't matter. It just doesn't. Jesus is saying, don't worry about your body. If your body is functioning, you're fine. Just serve God. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the kingdom of God. Clothing, same kind of thing. Not for lack of clothing. Most of us aren't like just barely scraping things together and coming in barely like covered. Right? We, we got plenty of clothes. Now the things we worry about are, are my clothes in style or in season or are my clothes the right price? Like maybe I'm spending too much on my clothes. Maybe I'm not spending enough on my clothes. Maybe I need to have nicer clothes or I won't really fit in. Right? I mean, we have so many ways that we invent to worry about the basics of life that really, if you just take a wider view for a minute, are not things we should worry about, right? God's provided basic needs and we still find ways to worry maybe you've heard the old story about the a man who hired a professional worrier for himself <laughs> said i have hired a guy i'm going to pay him a seventy-five thousand dollars salary to do all my worrying for me to really free up my mental space and give me peace of mind and when a friend asked him so where are you going to come up with the money to pay his salary he said i don't know that's for him to worry about that sounds kind of nice, right? Have somebody else to kind of take care of our worrying. Someone we can unload all our cares onto, who will ease our burdens, give us peace of mind, handle our anxiety. But wait a minute. That sounds a little bit like what we have in the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what he's there for. He's your professional worrier. But he's not really worried. He's got it under control. Cast your anxieties on him. He can handle it. He can take care of it for you. So looking at your own heart, your own life, what are your areas of weakness? Like think back through that, your life, your food and drink, your body, your clothing. What, in what ways are you tempted toward worry and anxiety? When you recognize that, you can even ask God to help you see it. When you see that area, confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to a brother or sister in Christ. Seek accountability to grow in your anxiety, or rather to grow out of your anxiety. Right? We, we, we want to see the Lord. We want to see our faith in God and his ability and his faithfulness to grow. And as that happens, our anxiety and our worries will diminish. Now, as, as a parenthesis or a side here, I think there is, uh, there, there is a category for 
anxiety and things like that that are related to mental and emotional processes that we're not always necessarily able to control, necessarily responsible for. I do think that there's kind of a, a clinical anxiety situation that has physical burdens and effects that are not even necessarily directly related to what I'm thinking about, how I'm feeling, or things like that, right? And so I don't, I don't want you to hear me say that across the board, every form of wrestling with anxiety is necessarily sinful. But I also, that's kind of a can of worms for another day. But I think for just understanding this passage and hearing the heart of Jesus here, we need to recognize that in our worry, in our anxiety, there often is a root of distrust, a root of not really believing that God is going to take care of us. He's not going to fulfill his promises. So don't get so hung up, Jesus says, on the basics of life. Life is more than this, right? Life is about more than food, and the body is about more than clothing. Don't be so busy with worry and anxiety that you can't be bothered with the things of the kingdom of God. That's how that fits into this passage where he's saying, store up treasures in heaven and live for eternity and serve God as your master and not money, right? Don't be so worried about providing the basics that you can't give yourself to the kingdom of God. So worry is disobedient. There, there is a sense in which worry is just not trusting God. Secondly, worry is unnecessary. It is totally unnecessary to worry about these things, these basics of life. And he doesn't just give us this flat command, like, just trust me, will you? He gives us evidence of his trustworthiness to reinforce it. So when it comes to food and drink, he gives us the example of the birds of the air. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That's actually kind of a funny image if you think about it. Like to think of birds like stockpiling food and like building little barns and cramming all their stuff into it, right? We build them birdhouses, right? We're the ones that stockpile for them. Because we're like, oh no, the birds, they need to be taken care of, right? But the birds aren't doing that. The birds aren't going, oh no, I've got to have my second barn full or I'm not going to make it through the winter. That's not what they do. They just one day at a time find the food that's available and God takes care of them. Just one day at a time, one meal at a time. That's how it works. Kind of like the uh, children of Israel in the wilderness. They wandered around for 40 years and God, God fed them with manna, this like flaky bread type stuff that came from heaven. Every morning, they'd wake up, go out, find the manna, and eat it. And that it was just enough for that one day. And when they tried to get greedy, or they were worried about the future, and tried to kind of like store some more up and set it aside, when they woke up the next morning, it was rotten. Wasn't any good. God's like, no, you've got to trust me one day at a time. That was the lesson that he was teaching his people in that season. Trust me for daily bread. Remember the the sort of model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is actually in this same Sermon on the Mount or just before it, right? Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say store up for us giant savings accounts full of money so that we'll never have anything to worry about. Just feed us today, Lord. Just feed us today. And the same is true of the birds. They rely on God's providence every single day. And then he argues from the lesser to the greater. Like if God takes care of birds... How much more is he going to take care of you? Because you're his children. This is 
precious. This is tender. Your father's care for you is personal and deep. You are his child. If he takes care of birds, rest assured, he'll take care of you. Don't worry about food and drink. Trust God to take care of your daily needs. For body and clothing, he gives us the analogy of flowers. Look at verses 28 through 30. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, like they're not making clothes for themselves. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, Solomon was the one who built the big temple in Jerusalem and the most kind of the height of the power of the kingdom of Israel, Solomon's glorious kingship and this beautiful temple. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Like <laughs> Solomon got nothing on the flowers that I'm clothing, right? This is beautiful. But if God so clothes, it does the same thing, argues from the, less, the lesser to the greater. If God so clothes the flowers, which are going to be in the oven tomorrow, right? Their lifespan is like that. How much more will he clothe you? If you're not as generous as you'd like to be, if you look at your life and your giving and how you're spending your time and resources, you're not as generous as you'd like to be. If you feel burdened down with financial concerns, could it be that you're not trusting your father to take care of you? Could it be that you are keeping aside things for yourself because you're afraid that those needs won't be provided and because of what you're keeping aside, you're not able to generously invest in the kingdom of God? I'd really like to give 10% at church, but it will eat into my grocery budget. Or I'd really like to get involved in a small group or invite an unbeliever to read the Bible together, but then I'd have to give up on my exercise routine and then my body wouldn't be fit. All right, so we invite all of these worries about the basics of life into our schedules and into our finances and into our relationships so that we end up turning inward and spending our lives for ourselves instead of for the kingdom of God, instead of for others. Finally, worry is unnecessary because God already knows what you need. Look at that in verse 32. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, the Gentiles didn't only mean, in this context, doesn't only mean non-Jewish people. Actually would have referred to pagan idol worshipers who lived around them at this time. So when he says Gentiles, he means the people who don't know me, the people who are living for themselves and serving false gods, like they're worried about food and drink and clothing and their bodies, right? They're, they're worried about that stuff and frantically piling up, which kind of makes sense because they don't know God. They don't have the blessing and the kindness and the provision and providence of God in their lives because they're not his. So it makes sense for an idol worshiper. It makes sense for a non-believer to be worried about things, but he's your father. Like your father knows what you need before you ask him. The child of God has no need for such concern. God already knows that you need it and he cares for you. He's going to take care of you. So worry is not just disobedient, it's unnecessary. We rack ourselves and pile uh, worry and fear and anxiety and stress upon ourselves completely unnecessarily because God will take care of your needs. Trust him. Worry is not just unnecessary, it's counterproductive. Look at verse 27. 
Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Right? This is a little bit like the Dr. Phil approach. How's that working for you? Right? Oh, you're going to like pile up anxiety and stress and freak yourself out about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, what, the, what you're going to wear. How's it going? You feeling good? You like how life is going this way? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Like, you can't add any time to your life by your anxiety. And in fact, we actually know the opposite is true. But medical research has indicated time and time again that stress and anxiety actually shorten a person's life. Either through physiological factors like cortisol that's released in your blood and stuff like that when you worry, or through bad habits and harmful behaviors that people seek out as a way of coping with their stress, right? Lives get shortened by stress and anxiety uh, instead of being lengthened by it. So Jesus is basically saying, even if you worry and stress out about your life and try to frantically manage and control every detail, you won't be any better off. You can't improve upon your father's loving providential care for you. So don't try. Don't try to play God in your own life. Let God take care of you. Don't panic about your provision. So worry is disobedience. Worry is unnecessary because of your father's care for you. Worry is counterproductive because it actually shortens your life instead of adding to it. You can't improve upon God's care for you. There is... A condition. There's a catch, if you will. Jesus places a condition upon this providential care. This promise of provision is not for everyone without exception. Who's it for? Look at verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Who's the promise for? The person who lives and gives in such a way that the kingdom of God is his first and defining priority. That's who the promise is for. In other words, God takes care of the kingdom first giver. The one who's living for his kingdom has no reason to fear the basic needs of life because he's going to take care of you. You're investing your life and your resources and your time and your talents and your relationships in his kingdom then he will take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These things being clothing and food and the like. So what are we supposed to seek? He tells us two things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God, just as a reminder, is not a place. It's not like a faraway land where God happens to live and reign. It is a dominion. It is, it is the authority of Jesus Christ in the hearts of his people. The kingdom of God is the realm, if you will, of his domain where Jesus is recognized as the king. And his kingdom expands as his authority is recognized by more people and submitted to more fully. Even in our own lives, as we recognize more and more Jesus' authority and yield to him, his kingdom grows, his kingdom expands. The eternal kingdom of God is the final situation of the universe in the future where God rules without an opponent and his people joyfully submit to his authority and enjoy his glorious presence. Wow, that's going to be amazing. This is the final station in life. So to seek first the kingdom of God means 
this is what we want more than anything else. We want his authority to spread, his glory to be seen and cherished, and we want our lives to be spent for this purpose. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. We want the authority of Jesus to be recognized. We want our own lives to be used and spent in service of growing that kingdom. That's what kingdom first living looks like. What does it mean to seek his righteousness? I think this means Jesus, uh, that Jesus means our own growth and righteous character. There's the righteousness of God that is imparted to us, given to us by faith. And then as we grow in the Christian life, we grow in holiness, in righteousness. He tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29, that the purpose of God in our lives is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. So more and more, increasingly, incrementally, as the days go by, we more and more reflect his character. In other words, we prioritize God's glory as reflected in lives of holiness and love. So I think to, to seek his righteousness means we seek our own growth in Christian character, Christ-like love and mercy and compassion and holiness. So what does kingdom first giving look like? What does it look like to be a kingdom first giver? Like we put the kingdom of God above everything else in our lives. I'm going to give you three areas with one practical sort of possible uh, application. This could be bigger. The list could be longer. I'll leave it to the Holy Spirit in you to spark your own creativity and give you ideas of how to flesh this out more. But here are three areas of life with one corresponding application. Kingdom first giving affects your budget. Kingdom causes get first dibs, not leftovers. A kingdom first giver plans his finances so that kingdom causes are first, not last. Giving to the church, giving to missions around the world, giving to benevolence causes, like just meeting needs of people around you. And you could expand that list of what kingdom giving is, what things qualify, so to speak, for investing financially in the kingdom of God. Uh, but in your budget, the kingdom first giver gives kingdom causes first dibs, not leftovers. Not like I'm going to make sure all of my bills and needs and wants and fun stuff is all met, and then we'll see what's left at the end of the month, and then I'll drop that in the offering plate. That's not kingdom first giving. That's kingdom somewhere down the line giving, right? Kingdom first giving says, you know what? I value the kingdom of God, and I trust God enough to give him the first chunk, the first fruits of my finances, and I'm going to trust him to take care of the rest. That doesn't mean, I'm not talking about willy-nilly, just like I'm going to throw all the money that I have through the wind or whatever. Okay, I'm writing everything in my bank account to the church on a check right now. That's not what I'm talking about. Because the Bible also calls us to wisdom and to, you know, to plan for the future and things like that. So I'm not saying be an idiot with your money for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's not what I'm talking about. But the kingdom of God gets first dibs, right? The first thing. For some of you, that might mean moving toward a tithe. That is actually 10% of your income. Some of you, that could be maybe the, the next step is to move toward actually giving a 10% tithe of your income to the Lord and to his work. For some of you, it might mean more than that. It might mean, well, I'm already kind of at that, so maybe I need to figure out how I can take a next step in my giving. And I'm not saying all that money has to come to the church. 
but invest it in the kingdom of God in some way. So kingdom first giving in your budget means kingdom causes get first dibs, not leftovers. I think that's a challenge for all of us, for me too. In your schedule, kingdom first giving will affect your time, right? Kingdom causes claim more time and attention than personal pursuits. That's what kingdom first giving would look like in terms of how you budget your time, what your calendar looks like. Personal pursuits, not bad things, things like fitness, entertainment, recreation, right? First thing I'm going to do is make sure that my schedule allows room for kingdom causes. Because sometimes I think we go like, oh, there's all these nice things, there's good things I'd like to be involved in, ways I'd like to invest in the kingdom of God, whether it's, you know, inviting an unbeliever into a conversation or a Bible study or participating in some ministry at the church or whatever it is. But I'm just so stinking busy with job and with family and with recreation and with kind of personal goals and things like that, that there's just no room. If you look at your calendar, so I mean, here's an actual practical application. Look at a calendar for several months, maybe six months worth, and evaluate. Do I see kingdom causes reflected here? Would somebody look at how I'm spending my time and discern this person values the kingdom of God? Or would I have to guess that? So your schedule, kingdom causes claim more time and attention than personal pursuits. And relationships would be a third area. For the kingdom first giver and liver uh, relate in relationships, gospel opportunities become a priority in conversations. This is, this is a, a rebuke and an exhortation to myself as much as anybody else. We should seek actively opportunities to speak about Christ and the gospel to people that we're in relationship with. Even forming new relationships for the purpose of speaking about Christ and the gospel. If we are kingdom first people, if the kingdom of God and its growth is most important to us, then we need to see all of our relationships and all of our potential relationships as resources God's entrusted to us. And he's saying, I want you to use these, steward these relationships for my purposes, for my glory, for my kingdom, which means we're going to be more intentional in our relationships to find and take advantage of opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ and relate to people at a spiritual level, even with other Christians. Even when we're in conversation with a brother or sister in Christ, it means our conversation should reflect kingdom priorities, right? Not Christians get together and talk about football, and that's all we talk about, but we should actually talk about the Lord, right? Things of, of, of his word and how he's growing us and challenging us, right? We should encourage and challenge each other along those lines. So those are just three areas of life, budget, schedule, and relationships, three really big areas, and a couple of possible applications. I'm not, I don't want to make law here. You don't need that. And if I could give you a law, it wouldn't be helpful to you. So I, I'm not saying here's exactly what your life should look like. I'm not the one that needs to govern your calendar or your budget or things like that. That's not, that's not on me. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But give him say, right? Give him priority in that. Let him lead the way as you're looking at your budget and planning for finances and looking at your schedule and your calendar and planning what activities you'll be involved in and what you'll say no to and in your relationships. 
How am I stewarding my relationships for the gospel and for his opportunity? So in your life, just take a step, right? I'm not saying we all got to be perfect. That ain't going to happen. It ain't happening in my life, I guarantee you that. Just take a step. Identify an area in need of reform and make a plan. Here's how I intend to see my finances reformed and put the kingdom of God higher in my list of priorities. Or here's how I intend to look at my schedule and to, to govern my life and time more for his purposes and his glory. God takes care of the kingdom first giver. And so he gives us this concluding exhortation one more time, repeating that exhortation. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. It's verse 34. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I like how the New Living Translation renders this verse. It says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Amen, anybody? Today has enough trouble, doesn't it? We don't need to invite tomorrow's trouble into today's planning, into today's mental processes. It's not, we don't have the resources for it. It's not enough. Just as God feeds the birds one day at a time, he will take care of those who are investing his kingdom. So trust him for your daily provision and leave tomorrow to his wise providence. You don't know what's coming down the pike, but he does. And so you can trust that he'll give you what you need when the time comes. Don't borrow troubles from next week, next month, next year. You know how this goes, right? You start thinking about a situation in your life. You envision several possible outcomes. You try to plan a response to those outcomes. Then you imagine that going badly. And so on and on and on. Now you're doing damage control for catastrophes that haven't even occurred and may never occur, right? Because you've invented these things in your imagination. Today has enough trouble, right? Just tackle today's concerns with your eye on Jesus and his righteousness and leave tomorrow to him. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, well-known, well-loved verses by many anxious Christians. says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know why the Lord's mercies are new every morning? Because every morning brings its own set of needs and concerns. And God provides just enough wisdom, patience, mercy, and strength to get through today. Right? He hasn't given you tomorrow's grace yet. Tomorrow's mercies come tomorrow. So don't mess with tomorrow's problems before their time. Lindsay and I often catch each other in conversations when one of us is expressing fear or concern uh, about some problem down the road. And the other might interrupt and say, that's not today's worries. Right? That's, that's, that's tomorrow's problem. I think it's, it's, it's a helpful check, a reminder. Okay, let's stay in the moment. Let's trust God for the future. Let's just do what we need to do, right? God takes care of the kingdom first giver. So you're his child. He loves you. He is able to meet your needs. He promises that he will meet your needs on the condition that you are investing your life in his kingdom, that the kingdom of God is your top priority. So let's seek each of us to grow in that. Let's challenge and encourage each other along that journey. How are you investing in the kingdom of God? How are you seeing God's kingdom and eternal plans and purposes rising in your list of values and priorities and spending and time and relationships? And if we'll 
use the resources God's entrusted to us with his glory in mind, with his kingdom in view, he will take care of the rest. Let me close with uh, words from an old hymn that you might know. Be still, my soul. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. Let me pray.